This week, we dive into one of the big drawbacks of online courses, that not very many people actually complete them. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. Hey, what's up, Rick? What's up, Tyler? Not a lot. You sound like you uh, had a rough night of drinking last night or something. <laughs> I actually have not drinking in a while. Um, I have lost, my, started losing my voice like two or three days ago, and thank goodness I'm not a singer. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Like someone who goes on tour, like what's what's happening to their voice for like months on end? Yeah. You hear these stories and people just power through it. And then, you, you know, Dave Matthews used to just have bloody fingers all the time because he just pound on the guitar oh. <laughs> and it's you gotta, the show must go on. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so one thing I want to talk about today, uh, I've talked before about this course that I made for Less Annoying Business. It's like a course on how to make your website. And one of the questions you asked me in the past was like, are people doing it basically? And I, or, or this was like one of my concerns is like, people have signed up for it, but is anyone actually finishing it? No one's really telling me they're finishing it or like showing me the website they made. Well, there, there's a saying like, if you know how to make money doing something, then you can make money teaching someone how to do that same thing. And so I think anyone who is interested in making money on their expertise as interested in courses. And so mm-hmm. I'm super interested in following your journey with this because if it works, it might be something I want to do. Yeah. So I don't really have a ton of updates myself. I th- we've had about a, maybe a hundred people go through and do the course and I've gotten good feedback in the sense of people like thanking me for it, but I haven't heard from anyone saying they actually made a website as a result of it. Uh, I was listening to the My First Million podcast the other day, and they they put out an episode where they talked about courses. And y- you don't normally listen to that, right? So I assume you didn't hear that episode. It's so funny. I mean, I I just went on my walk, and I was listening to the most recent episode with Andrew mm. Wilkinson because I love that guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, man, I, I have to start listening to that podcast more because it's it's a gem. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of crap in there that I don't like, but I mean, it's it's worth the time it's for it's, sure. It's high quality content. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were talking about courses and I, it was maybe a few episodes ago. So if anyone's interested, go back and listen to it. But one of the things they said that I thought was really interesting is basically they were going through different, you know, they do research on all these companies and they're like, one of these, one of these companies was selling like a paid course, whereas mine is free and said they got like 200 people to sign up for it and three completed it. And that that's good is what they were saying. This was a paid course? Yes, paid. And one of the examples they the, said was like was $5,000. I, I don't know if that's the one. What was the subject? They talked about a bunch of different ones, and I think I'm getting my wires crossed, but all, all kinds of... They, they covered a bunch of examples and all, all kinds of different this subjects. This feels eerily familiar to my Kindle because I probably buy 10 books and read one. Mm-hmm. And they gave that example too, is they're like, yeah, you buy a bunch of books, you put them on your bookshelf, you don't necessarily read them. I mean, think about how many you actually finish. Like that's a whole nother multiple. Yeah. And I, I actually think this might have been 200 started it, not just bought it. Or it, it the, basically the numbers were really, really bad. And they kind of had a conversation about like, maybe that's fine. Like if you're running a course and people are buying it and they're telling, they're giving you good feedback, but they're not completing it. Should you view that as like an activation problem or should you just be like, well, that's the model. That's how this works. My first, my first reaction is if you want it to go viral and have lots of word of mouth, that mm-hmm. is not a recipe for that to happen because you're not, um, yes, you may be making money on a strict, you know, uh, top to bottom funnel, but you're not having that levered 
growth that gets better every time you add, a, add someone to the course. Yeah. Okay. So I buy that someone finishing it is definitely better than someone not finishing it for that. But I guess the one of the points they made is people can get a lot of value out of it without finishing the course, which is interesting, I think. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So fair enough. Completion doesn't necessarily indicate value. Yeah. Or even doing it at all. So to your yeah. point about the books, like sometimes I buy books and I'm like, I know I'm not going to read it, but I want this as a resource. It's like, you know, 15 bucks. I want to know like, that I have this. Right. Like if this problem comes up, I'm going to go read this book, but I, I don't need to read it now. It's but. not like you could have just bought it when you need it, but yeah, it's a kind of a weird emotional thing. I don't, I can't explain it. Yeah. And then the other thing they talked about a lot that I like resonated with me is the idea of like a course is aspirational and maybe it's motivating people. Maybe, maybe like a lot of people I think got the emails from my course and probably read them. I don't know what it means to quote unquote complete my course, but I think it means making a website. Probably a lot of people read it and like maybe got little hints of inspiration throughout it, but didn't take it all the way through making a website. Like it's possible people got value just for the the aspirational side of it. That's fair enough. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I thought that was interesting and I, I feel less discouraged by the course at this point. And then the final note here, they said one thing at the end that I thought was super interesting. They said the only way to avoid this problem of people not completing it is to do cohort-based courses. Um, and I've seen so many people do these cohort courses and I've until I heard that, I hated it. Because people are like, I've got this marketing course on how to do SaaS marketing. I only allow people in twice a year. So if you want to do it, do it now. I always viewed this as like a shitty high pressure sales tactic, like creating false scarcity. But apparently it actually does really, really help the numbers of people getting through because it's like going to college where you have a bunch of people doing it with you and you kind of have social pressure to complete it then. Yeah. It's like it, it multiplies the forcing function. There's one forcing function when you buy a book of like, oh, I'm going to spend money on this. And because I'm putting my resources towards it, I'm more likely to aspire to reach for my aspiration. But when you add social pressure to that monetary function. It's a whole nother thing. There's a great Indie Hackers podcast episode. I actually took notes on it because it was so good and posted them to ricklandquist.com with, uh, I believe his name is Jay Klaus. Um, I'm not sure how you say his last name, but it was in the last 10 to 12 Indie Hacker episodes. And he, he walks through his co- cohort style and walks through some of the benefits. And I really, I really, uh, I think that's a great idea, but very, very manual. And if you're going to do that, you need to have a pretty high dollar figure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, can, can, okay. you do, can you replicate cohorts, for example, with a free email course? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I think so. But the, another thing they said, which I wasn't planning on talking about, but they kind of said, like, cor- the course business is great for people with an audience. We've talked before, there's this whole debate, should you build an audience first, yes or no? And you, you pointed out, like, there's not a right or wrong answer here. But I do think, like, having an audience and then selling a SaaS product to them doesn't work that well. So having an audience and selling a course to them probably works super well. I think if you have 50,000 Twitter followers, whether it's free or paid, this course model and the cohort-based course model probably works pretty well. I don't know that I have enough of an audience to really like generate the buzz to get a bunch of people to sign up all at once. Well, speaking of courses, I'm now 50% through my JavaScript course with Wes Boss, uh, westboss.com. It's the beginner JavaScript course. Um, I get the impression that he has grown his audience through his courses mm-hmm. versus had an audience and then, you know, sort of built the courses. So it's sort of chicken and egg here too. Like a really, really good course, just like a really, really, really good book or a really, really good piece of content should, you know, have some multiplier effect of one plus one equals more than two. Yeah. And, and if not, 
then you're really just, you know, trying to kind of extract value out of your existing audience or yeah. the people or the well, people that you can sort of gain the attention of. Right. And I'm kind of doing the opposite of that. I'm saying like, I want to use the course to generate leads for a different thing. But if, if your whole business is courses, then yeah, you should have this flywheel of like the course gets you audience, the audience gets you course members and it just kind of loops around. Yeah. That's really what you want with no matter what you're working on, whether it's a yeah. piece of content or a business. True, true. Uh, yeah, what's up with you? Uh, I mean, mostly just working through the course. Um, I had a couple of uh, questions for you related to programming, and they're probably super stupid questions, but I thought I'd ask them uh, on the podcast, and maybe you could help me accelerate some of my learning. Um, cool. So one question was related to maps. Um, is this a relatively new JavaScript uh, object or utility? Like I don't fun- know what you call function, it. Function, yeah. What, what, like, it, it seems like... Why would you use maps instead of an object? Well, the map, if I understand it correctly, isn't like it returns an object to you. Uh, the map map is a function. Oh wait, sorry. Map can mean two different things. I think I'm. There's a function that like maps things. You're talking about a map, the data type. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. And it's like it seems like it's for storing data, but it it it, it smells like an object. And it kind of looks like an object, but it's not yeah. an object. And I'm just wondering, my, my main question is like, I guess just kind of jumping to the case, do you or your team find yourself using maps a lot when you're writing JavaScript? If so, if not, why not? If so, what are some of the use cases? Gotcha. Uh, I think it is relatively new. I think maybe I have literally never used a map in JavaScript before, but th- that's I'm kind of like old school. But like in computer science, like classes in college, they teach you about this and what an object in JavaScript is, is this weird, like, sort of array, sort of map. It's like not, it's not a pure computer science data type. And I think this is me editorializing because I'm not sure, but I would guess that JavaScript, as it's becoming a more professionalized language, they want more specific data types that, like, you can predict the behavior a little better. So I think, like, objects get the dot job done just fine, but they're a little, like, amateurish, which is fine for you and me. Got it. So, in, 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 if you're like doing some some serious programming, you may find the specialized uh, sort of advantages of a map uh, data type uh, to be more efficient than working with it. It may be more error proof than working with uh, the same data in an object. Yeah, I think the full name would be a hash map. Again, I'm. This is based on my computer science classes. I don't know specifically for JavaScript, but. Um, what a JavaScript object is is basically a hash map. I can't tell you what the differences are, but yeah, that what you just said, I think, is probably right. Cool. Um, the second, uh, so basically, I'm just not gonna. He's teaching maps, but and he he's sort of said the same thing as you. Is like West Paul's like this is new. I don't really use them, but I can see the attractive. He's like I see the attractiveness of this, and mm-hmm. you should know about this because he he basically predicted that it would become more popular, a more popular use used uh, yeah. data type. I buy that. Um, the other thing is utility libraries. When we did pair, a pair programming session, um, when I was writing that script for Leg Up Health, uh, doing the monthly update emails, you, um, I think, had some utility. You, you mentioned that you had utility functions and that you were using them and that basically I wouldn't have access to them. Um, mm. And I'm just wondering, um, it seems like there's two ways to pull in utility libraries um, in your JavaScript. You could actually, like, because JavaScript is on the internet, um, you can pull it in from another hosting, like another server that you don't control, um, or you can host it on your own server. And I'm wondering, like with utility libraries, 
is it okay to sort of just leverage third-party libraries and that are hosted on trusted sites and not worry about it? I think mostly yes, um, assuming they intend for it to be used that way. So you shouldn't like go to some random competitor site and be like, oh, well, they're hosting this. I'm going to use that. But if someone puts it on a CDN for it to be used like that, that's fine. I still, if if it's a customer-facing thing, I generally try to host it myself because third-party JavaScript could always be blocked by ad blockers and stuff like that. Um, and I, I think it's less likely to happen if it's hosted on the same domain that people are on. If this is like a little back-end Airtable script you're making, it doesn't matter. If it's customer-facing, I probably would try to host it myself. Got it, got it. You said CDN? What is CDN? Yeah, uh, co- uh, content... Um, Del- delivery network. Delivery network, yeah. yeah. So what that's is, What like, is that? Basically, if you have static files that don't need a backend, and so a dynamic file is like it has to hit a database, and it what it returns is different based on who loads it. A static file is like it's returning the same thing every single time. Static files don't need a full web server to be served. So a CDN is just like a really, really efficient way to serve static files where it's it's very cheap and you're not like burdening anybody by using their resources to load that file, basically. Uh, here's what I, okay, the reason... Utility functions, basically, uh, libraries, uh, basically bring in pre-written code for you to use. Um, and man, it seems like we talked in the past about how like the bar has raised for building a start a software company um, where it was much easier to bootstrap something in the past, potentially, because the bar was so low, you could just throw something out and start charging for it. Whereas now the design requirements are higher, the customer expectations are higher, and it makes it harder to get to a... Tr- the MVP bar is higher. Um, but uh, it seems like with like these utility libraries, there's so much more pre-written, mm-hmm. reusable uh, code available that... You know, for a basic CRUD app, once you understand how this all fits together, you don't have to write much code to get to build a basic CRUD app. And I guess I'm not sure what that. Like, it seems like if you can find a good, if you know how to code, and you can find a kind of a an old crappy, not crappy, an old great industry that hasn't been sort of, you know, cloudified. You can like basically build something really fast that go like goes from zero to one and not have to like write like write much code. Is that I mean might my thinking about that the right way? Yeah, I think so. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think okay. you're right. And I actually think Ernest Capital, which we talk about a lot, their investment thesis is sort of based on this. It's the idea that like the there's very little technical risk involved in building a simple CRUD SaaS app these days, but you do need domain expertise. So like if you're going after some industry, this is what you're doing, right? You're saying the reason you're going to win is because you know health insurance, not because you're great at technology. The technology is a commodity in your case. So I I 100% agree with that. The risk that I think you run is, so like, let me, let me throw out a potential stack here, like a a way to combine things. You could use, you know, some kind of like, you know, Firebase or some kind of like database you're not running yourself. You could use uh, one of these like Ruby on Rails or something like that as your backend. You could use Tailwind CSS to make it look nice. You could use React, React Router. All these are just different libraries that you combine together and almost all the work's done for you. Um, the problem is when you want to change stuff, it's a lot easier to edit code you've written than it is to edit one of these massive frameworks that has like a million configuration options and all that. So I think like this is actually a similar question we've asked before about no code. Like, when should you use no code and when shouldn't you? And the answer is like, it'll get you so far, but at some point you might get stuck. You might get limited by the constraints. I think there's just like, 
lower down the stack, the same thing happens if you rely too much on these frameworks. It's great for prototyping stuff. It's great for getting stuff out there. Maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but like at Less Knowing CRM, we don't use one of these libraries unless we don't think we could reasonably implement it ourselves in, in a short amount of time. Got it. Okay. Um, well, it's, it feels like, would you agree though, that like compared to 10 years ago, if you, once you learn how to code, you can do a lot more things faster mm, uh, yeah. than you could a year ago. I would say it's like, it sort of offsets that bar of the MVP bar because mm-hmm. you can, co- you can get an app running so fast. I agree. I don't like it because like my skill set is design and coding and that's like a less valuable skill set now. Yes. It's more knowing the industry or something. And it's not just these libraries, by the way, it's also APIs. It was so hard to charge someone's credit card when I got started with Less Knowing CRM. And now it's like, just make a Stripe account. Uh, you know, there are all these APIs for doing all kinds of different things, using Zapier to do automation. All that stuff was not an option before. So one of the projects that we're going to do in this course is a dad joke uh project and <laughs> nice. we leverage an API to pull in the dad jokes. And it's just like, once you understand how to do that, because of the, there are so many APIs out there that can do really powerful things. You can really like, I mean, it's pretty exciting, uh, frankly, I guess that's what I'm trying to say about what yeah. I think I'll be able to do at the end of, of this course, which I should finish next week. Yeah. Um, I, it also creates a lot of cool opportunities for businesses that just provide an API. Like, have you seen any of these, like Banner Bear, or I mean, there's a million of oh, them. Oh yeah, the Banner Bear thing's cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, like niche APIs. Yeah, you don't even need an app. You don't need a front end at all. It's just like, you know, we're we're going to handle this one little hard part that like every developer needs to do this. We're just going to make it super easy through this API, and then you can outsource everything. Yeah, it, it's a whole new world. Um, I, I actually think I'm a little bit of a dinosaur here. Like. When I think about what are the risks of me and less knowing CRM getting beat in the future, I think it's that we're not leveraging all this stuff as well as we probably should. Yeah. Hmm. That'll be interesting to follow. Um, what well, last update I have is that uh, I've made a commitment to myself and to my family. I say family now <laughs> instead of my wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I am going to take uh, Friday um, and Monday Memorial Day and the entire weekend off, like zero work, um, shutting off the email, doing doing nothing. And uh, we're going to go to Bear Lake and I'm looking forward to it. I, I just, I really haven't done that in a long time. Yeah. And uh, it'll be good to reconnect with, with every, with the family. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you just got back from vacation. How's the transition back? And did you feel like you got rejuvenated? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I did a lot less work in LA than I thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be the type of, like, when you say you haven't done it in a while, it's not that you haven't taken a vacation. It's that when you take a vacation, you're still checking email and stuff like that. I thought that's what this was going to be for me. And as soon as I realized, like, I really need this break, I basically didn't, I, I, t- I had a couple of, like, calls scheduled that I didn't want to bother rescheduling. But aside from that, I did nothing. Uh, I didn't even touch my computer some of the days I was there. It's great. Like, I mean, as soon as I got back, I was like, I'm ready to go. I I, I wouldn't want to do that for much longer than I did. But yeah, I, I'm I'm happy for you. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward to it. I've got a, it, it's meaning a lot of late nights this week, but um, mm. totally worth it. Cool. Do you worry at all? Uh, I think a lot of founders at your stage are worried, like, what if a customer has an emergency or something like that? If a customer has an emergency, you know, I'll get notified. I have my phone. Um, it's not going to come via an email. It's going to be a phone call and I'll handle it. Okay. So you're not checking email, but you're going to, if phone someone calls, me. you'll, yeah. you'll check it out. Okay. Yeah. But no, it's going to call. Yeah. Right. I, I agree. And if they do, it might sound like an emergency in it very, unless like 
See, I was going to say, unless the site goes down, you, you, even for you, that well, probably isn't an emergency. Well, and really. I'm, I'm, and tomorrow, on Thursday, I'm going to be sending uh, monthly updates out early, and I'm going to let people know that we're closed. Oh, so, that's great. Um, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be an issue. We talk about this all the time, but setting expectations—that's all it takes. If 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 you're worried people get mad that you don't respond at night or on weekends, just tell them you don't respond at night and on weekends, and it'll be fine. Totally. Cool. Um. All right. I got a couple more updates here. I don't think anything that'll take too long. Uh, I told you, like, we we got this big enterprise account. It's done. They sent the check in. We've deposited the check. They didn't actually start using the CRM right away, though. So, like, as of last week, they count as paying users. I'm having to, like, do kind of quasi-accounting stuff for the first time ever. It's not real accounting, but, like, they sent us $45,000 as a check. I don't want to just put that in the bank account and treat it as revenue because it's really going to, you know, get dripped out to me over the coming months. Um, so I, I've started, like, I created a separate bank account. I'm just, like, paying myself as if they were paying monthly because I don't know what I'm, I don't know how to do, like, what is it, accrual accounting or it's whatever. Revenue, it's called revenue recognition. And yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know how is, to do that. Well, that's great. Like, you're actually creating a, a, a trans, trackable transaction for when you want to recognize the revenue and, that's actually a really smart way of like hacking the accounting. So, but yeah, you should, what you typically do when you get paid in advance for stuff is you, it comes in as a um, deferred revenue um, uh, liability um, mm. and, and uh, basically, you know, and cash. So like your balance sheet balances, and then you recognize the deferred revenue as revenue, um, uh, you know, over time uh, of the contract. And you're basically, you basically create a separate bank account and then create this deferred revenue uh, account on your balance sheet. And you're basically going to be, you know, tra- you know transitioning like, cash into your main bank account, which will count as it's when you recognize revenue. So totally yeah. works. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I knew that, I wasn't doing it the formal way, but I actually thought about it though. Like this could not, not that I expect us to get a bunch more enterprise accounts like this, but even if we did, it would be really easy to write up a script. They just told me each month, like, here are your 10 enterprise accounts. Transfer this much money from the, the main account to your other one. And I actually think this approach, like one of my themes that I, I hit on all the time is you can get pretty big without ever knowing what the fuck you're doing. And this is just another example. I don't see why this approach would fail us at any point. Yeah, the, well, I mean, the main reason, the, there's two reasons why companies that are more like sophisticated financially do it differently. The first is they have to meet accounting standards. Um, and so they, they're follow, they're actually meeting, uh, like FASB, for example. Um, and let's, let's pause real quick. Yeah. So why would some, like, I know one reason someone might need to do that is they have investors and they mm-hmm. want to like prove they're not defrauding their investors. What is that the main reason you would do that? Uh, a lot of, um, like if you're doing grants or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taking money from third parties, they're going to want, um, to be able to see it, uh, see your financials in a standardized format. Um, you could have, you know, you have personal preference um, because you, like, I'm, I don't want to see cash accounting. I want to see accrual accounting. Um, that's my preference because I'm more financially mind, uh, mm-hmm. minded. Um, that's one. But the bigger uh, reason is that people want to put that cash to work at a time. So one of the main reasons you charge annual contracts or multiple years in advance and then have deferred revenue is because you want to get that cash so you can hire salespeople to go get more of those contracts and get out in front of your skis a little bit. Um, and so that's that's the idea. Gotcha. But so to that second point, though, I could easily just take all this money and put it in my bank account and spend it. I Like if I do cash but, accounting or whatever. Yeah, so it's it, would not, break, it's not, it would break your your model. 
Yeah, but that, yes. Something I didn't appreciate in the early days is a lot of like accounting stuff is not about like, I I thought it was either you need to do this or you're running the business poorly or you need to do this or you'll like be breaking the law. And I now realize most of the complicated accounting and finance stuff is actually you need to do this so that third parties will trust you. And if you're bootstrapping, you don't care if third parties trust you and you can just kind of do whatever you want. I mean, obviously you have to file taxes correctly, but yeah. Yeah, but the CPA translates what you're doing into that for you. That's why you pay a CPA or a tax accountant. Yeah. Um, the other, you know, the, the and the reality is that if you've got it in QuickBooks and you really like, you need to get a third party to trust you, most of the time it's going to be because you want their money. Okay, so mark up their fee mark up your fee to them by whatever it's going to cost for some third party to another third party to come in and translate your books to their books, you know, their preferred view. And so it's like, it's kind of a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now that this enterprise thing is like really done, um, I wanted to just share a few lessons. I've talked about a few of these Mm. like tentatively before, but I just feel a little more confident about them now. Um, so I've got three things on my list here. One is project management, Enterprise sales is really project management. And like one of the things I think we did wrong in this process is we just like kept talking to them without having a roadmap. And the next time we do this, like Alex, who's kind of the person who led this, and I like we we both agree, like the move has got to be ask them, hey, what's the plan here? Who are the people on your end who are stakeholders who are gonna like w- w- let's collect what they're gonna need? Obviously, you can't you there are gonna be surprises that come up, but we didn't do it at all. And so there were a lot of, there were more surprises than there should have been. And I want to treat this more like project management and less like sales next time. Uncover the surprises up front. Yeah. And then some, another thing we've talked about is like, if it changes, that's fine, but it costs. The problem here is we were kind of like, we'll get through the whole thing and then you'll pay us. But we didn't have any expectations. We had expectations about what they were paying us for, but they weren't paying us for the sales process. The next time we need to say, we're expecting these steps. And then when they come back to us and say, you need to fill out this thousand question survey, we'll be like, no problem. The cost just went up to $20 per user per month or whatever. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. That's like too hostile. But if if we set expectations and then they change those expectations, that comes with a price adjustment. Sure. Yeah, I like it. Um, that's all theory, by the way. I have no idea if that would work, but that's what I would try next time. Well, I think what you're saying really is like, take get more control over balance the relationship and make sure that there's some accountability both ways. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's too one-sided. Um the next one is like there are expenses that come with enterprise sales beyond just the time. We ended up um one of the requirements was we needed to get more insurance than we had originally. Um the main type of insurance that you hear about is E&O, errors and omissions. This it was that and then it was kind of a bundle with other things. Uh, it cost us about $10,000 a year to get the insurance they were happy with. That's a significant amount of what they're going to pay us. I mean, it's, I don't know. We don't know what an annual contract will be yet because it's based on their usage, but that might be 10 or 15% of what they're paying us. Um, but I, I'm fine with it because the thing is we don't need another $10,000 insurance plan the next time. Um, same thing goes with compliance stuff where like a lot of enterprise deals will require SOC, SOC 2 or some other form of audit. We didn't actually do that this time. We got away without doing it. But it occurs to me, if you want to get into the enterprise sales game, you probably just need to invest in all this stuff. But like, it's mostly a one-time expense, I think. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the insurance thing. Um, I, I don't know much about the audits and compliance. I think that there's probably a shelf life for those. So probably 
you know, I don't know, like every few years you're going to have to update that. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the insurance is a fixed expense for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also my understanding, again, this is just theory, but like if we had had SOC 2 compliance uh, or an audit, I think we wouldn't have needed to do jump through a lot of the hoops. Like I think I, I, I mentioned in an earlier episode, they had us fill out this thousand question survey. I think if we'd said, oh, no, we're SOC 2 compliant, they would have been like, OK, we don't need the survey then. So I do think, again, this is not our business, but I would definitely be investing in that stuff if, if that's where we were going. Uh, and then the final one is just like, we should have gone into it saying we're going to charge more, partially because enterprise deals just take a lot of time and effort. And it's like, even though it's nice because we get a bunch of money all at once, the effort per dollar of revenue is arguably higher than it would be if it was all self-service revenue. The other thing, though, is like being able to give a discount goes a long way. You know, a lot of these big big companies, they have like a purchasing department and they will fight with you. So we did not give them a discount. We, but what we had to do is we had to be like, well, we're not going to give you a discount, but here's what we'll do. We'll give you special training. We'll make videos for you. You know, we'll, we'll do all this custom onboarding. What would have been much easier is to be like, the price for you is $20 per user per month. They would push back and say, can we get a discount? We'd be like, sure, we'll go to 15, which is the price we ended up charging anyway. I think that would have smoothed out the process quite a bit. It seems like all this black hat pricing stuff has its use cases in the enterprise world. Yes. And I feel terrible doing black hat stuff to small businesses and self-service customers, but I would have no qualms doing it to a a big company. (laughs) 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 Maybe that's just me. Yep. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of my my takeaways. Again, I have no idea if this will ever come up again for us, but we'll see. One thing that I just sort of remembered um, was back in the days when we were working together at Zane Benefits, um, things went, we kind of had this like blow up where we went from 30 employees to five employees. You, you and I were two of the five people. Um, and we had like three to six months runway to figure things out. And we actually... Uh, made it to cash flow positive by doing pseudo enterprise deals. We actually kind of built a product and like overcharged for it. Um, one deal we did, I remember we did a $10,000 deal or something like that with like on a wellness product. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's making me think like, oh, maybe there's some like, maybe there's some short term enterprise ish deals that make sense in the early days to help sort of get some, to fund some experiments that I should be looking at, um, for leg up health and leg up benefits. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe they work out and I, you know, we, we end up finding a, you know, a customer base there, but more of what happened at Zane benefits was it funded us figuring out the small business stuff. That's really interesting to me because the, our idea with less annoying CRM before, so our name is less annoying software. We came up with that name. We didn't know CRM is what we were going to build initially. And the early plan was we were just going to go do consulting stuff, be a peer services business, partially to fund what we're doing, but also partially to find the idea to say like, we're just going to go around and do these jobs. And eventually we're going to do a job that we think is repeatable and we're going to productize it. It sounds like what you're saying is almost like, like to abstract what you just said, Selling to an enterprise, and not just the sales process, but the actual product you're delivering is closer to a service, service yeah. than a product. So like, you could consult or you could do enterprise as a way to fund a more like scalable small business type Especially of thing. Especially the first few times you're doing it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, if I were doing that, I would probably be pretty careful to say the code for them is probably a whole different code base. Like They're going to make you do all kinds of crap that you don't want to be beholden to when you're 
productizing it for other people would mm, be my guess. Interesting. But um cool. And then my final update here is just more uh interview stuff. I'm not sure I have a point to any of this, but just to give an update. So we're looking for a software engineer. I've kind of given updates on this before, so I won't rehash all of it, but we have we kind of rethought the interview process a lot. And I feel really good about what we came up with. And so now we're ready to actually start interviewing and we, we we're doing that as, as of this week. Cool. Um, have you, you haven't had any yet? We, so what we did, we kind of shifted stuff around. We have a take home project. We moved that to the first step and we have sent that out to people. So what we used to do is do a phone screen then ask them to do a take-home project, then do a in-person, although with COVID, it may or may not be in-person. But um, that was kind of the previous step. We moved the take-home to the first step, which makes a lot of sense, partially just like, let's have them show they actually want to apply before we spend time on it. Uh, I, I don't want to abuse that because like, there's like a huge power imbalance here, but it's a really short take-home project. So people are doing that. A couple people have finished it. And then the next step will be that phone screen. But uh yeah, sorry, good. I like it. Cool. The the main thing we've changed is we we used to ask questions and give give a little like programming, like here's a question, can you code up the answer type of thing. We're shifting that almost entirely to pair programming where we're actually working on real code that will run and so they're doing the take home assignment, then the the uh, the phone screen is going to be, okay, let's open up your take home assignment and work on it together. Uh, so my hope is that it's a lot more like the real experience of working with someone rather than like, here's a quiz. Did you get the right answers? No, be, I'm, I'm interested to hear how this goes. Did you come up with this or did your team? Uh, honestly, like this is kind of known in the industry oh, okay. sort of. We, we already did pair programming before, but it was like one part of the final round interview. And now we it's got rid of all of the other stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we have two pair programming sections. One is the phone screen and then one in the other interview. And then the other thing we're doing is for the final interview, we're replacing the whiteboard coding stuff with just like talking through a problem. So we're just saying like, okay, we've got a calendar. You want to lay out events on the calendar so that they are as big as possible, but they don't cover each other. That needs to be, we need to be clever. Let's just talk about it, right? We're I not going to ask them to write code or that. anything. Yeah, right. It's I just problem solving. Wait, you can? I can, yeah. Okay. I know, how to, select, I know how to select elements and... Well, we're not gonna. We're not even gonna get in the code, though. We're gonna be like, just like, how should this happen? It's it's actually kind of a complex thing. That's not yeah. the actual question we're gonna ask. That's yeah. an example, but the point is, everything we're doing is something that someone might do working here. Yes. Versus, here are some like quiz questions that you're never actually gonna have to do in in oh, real life. Great. You're, you're, yeah, I love it. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. I'll I'll uh, keep giving updates. Uh, all right. That's all I got. And I know your, your throat's rough. <laughs> Anything well, there, else I, I wanted to talk about last, um, week's episode. It was mm. definitely, I felt uncomfortable while we were having the conversation because it was different. It was kind of conjecture, conjecture topic versus like, Hey, I have a problem. Can you help me work through it? Which is what we'd normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I listened to the episode and I, I left with a lot more conviction around how to think about the first few hires at leg up health. Um, and I, I really appreciated it actually, um, that, uh, so, so I'm looking forward to more listener questions. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was funny, like now that I'm like more, have more conviction, I, when you have conviction around something, 
you start hearing, like noticing when people say things that you agree with. Um, so I was actually listening to the first millions, uh, my first million podcast, uh, right before this. And they were talking about this billionaire, Brazilian billionaire guy. I don't know exactly who he is and they cannot say his name. So I'm not going to try to say his name, <laughs> but, but the, the, one of this billionaire's sayings early on was he looked for people with PSD. Um, and P stands for poor. S stands for smart and D stands for desire to get rich. And it, um, it sort of mirrors, uh, it's a little bit more specific, but it mirrors the framework that we sort of left with, uh, uh, last week, which is find someone with pain, um, that you can, you know, that, that, uh, has a desire to remove that pain and who's smart. And, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I, I have a lot of conviction around that now and it's, it's removed, um, some anxiety that I didn't realize I had around when to hire, who to hire. I feel like I've got a plan and when I'm ready, I'm going to, kn- I, I know who I'm looking for now. Yeah. Something that occurs to me, I, I listened to that episode as well, uh, that I really like about this model is sometimes when people talk about like diversity and equity and stuff around hiring, they act like it's kind of at odds with getting good people. It's like, do you want to be diverse or do you want the best person? Which I think is a false choice. And wait, this model actually is very, very aligned with diversity because like privileged people don't have a problem to solve, right? They're already fat and happy. Uh, so it's like find people who aren't being served by the current employment market and help them out. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. And so it's really, it's about finding win-wins, um, mm-hmm. like super win-wins. Uh, so anyway, I, I really like listener questions. So I know we've got a, a listener question or two queued up for when we have um, uh, a lull in the topics. Uh, if we were, if I wasn't uh, struggling with my voice, we would queue it up right now, but uh, we're going to cut it short today. Um, but if you have, a, if you have a, a topic like that, Man, if if I get something like what I got out of the last week uh, episode, every time we do a listener question, I'm gonna I'm gonna be begging for more questions. Yeah, our next one is a great question, but it's also it's one I I think about all the time for myself, and I like I have no answers for it, so we'll probably just be like I don't know, but it'll be interesting. <laughs> um, hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have a favor to ask: please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. If you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startblast.com. See you next week. See ya.